You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Lizzie Maggie Phillips, an activist, knew that the secret to getting the message out was a game. problems of the country were so vast in 1903. The income and quality that she was seeing was so strong, and how corporations worked, how things were stacked against the average person was so hard to describe. The picket sign and the chanting, it could only go so far. To get progressive change, people had to feel the situation and feel the changes that might be needed. So she created a board game. Board games were becoming very popular at the turn of the century, and there were numerous games involved. She made her game's goal exactly where she felt American society was going, the accumulation of wealth. You rolled dice. You moved around a board. You collected paper money. You could buy properties. And you had to avoid paying taxes. You landed on utilities that cost you money. Sometimes you got money from the community chest. When you did land on a space, you had a chance to buy the property. And when you bought a property, eventually you'd have a chance to put real estate on it. And when you did, you'd charge other people rent. But beware, because you could go to jail and then have to pay your way out. Or you could land on someone else's property or someone else's house or hotel and have to pay them money. She called it the landlord's game. And among its innovations, while many board games at the time had a start and a finish line, this game moved in a circle. Every time you passed the spot called Mother Earth, that spot recognized the contributions you had made and gave you $100. It might as well be called the game Life, she said, of her landlord's game. She got a patent for the game. March 23rd, 1903, it became popular, but not commercially successful. It almost became a communal property, and some would argue that indeed it was. A college student in Indiana who had heard of this landlord's game and made his own, tried to create a game, patent it, and sell it, but was told he couldn't even get a patent. It was so common. It became very popular, particularly in Atlantic City where many from Philadelphia, including the Quaker community, were vacationing. And many introduced game boards that had Atlantic City streets on it. This is where Charles Darrow, an unemployed salesperson who was made unemployed by the crash of 1929, was looking for a way to support his family. One of his hobbies was drawing 
pictures of Atlantic City. He took a tablecloth and drew an entire map of the city, all of its streets. When he heard about this game, he was so excited about it that he built game boards and sold it to friends for $4, all the while insisting that he had invented the game. In the 1930s, he sold it to Parker Brothers and immediately Monopoly, the game's title, with a very similar board to the Landlord's Game, but replacing Mother Earth for the start and using the names of various Atlantic City properties. Marvin Gardens, near Atlantic City, Boardwalk, St. James, Park Place, a no longer existing street that's now covered by a casino. Baltic Ave, all locations within Atlantic City, New Jersey. 20,000 sets were produced each year. Eventually, the game would sell millions, and Charles Dallow would receive royalties. As the game got more successful, Parker Brothers went around the country, found everyone who had had similar patents for similar games, and paid the money, including Phillips, who they paid $500. In 1936, after seeing the success of the Monopoly game, she didn't think she got enough. And there's a Washington Post article featuring her, and she has both her Landlord's Game board and the Monopoly board game in her hands, and you see how similar the boards are. Yet Parker Brothers would never give her much more. They did entertain two games that she developed, King's Men and Bargain Day. The games weren't that successful. When Liz Maggie Phillips died in 1948, no one associated her with the game Monopoly. At her most recent job, where she was a typist at the Department of Education, people said that she constantly talked about inventing games. It was only in 1972 when an activist wanting to make points about corporations, Ralph Anspach, developed a game called Anti-Monopoly, and Parker Brothers sued him he uncovered the story of Liz Maggie Phillips and the real roots of the game Monopoly that were actually closer to his game than theirs. He won. In a Whedon household in a Detroit suburb, the head of the household, Harry, is away working in New York City. He's a draftsman in a design department at Fisher Body Works. His wife, Helen, is at home with young kids. Though these employments kept them busy, the Whedons had another employment. They had a fortune building up in their account with Raymond and Company stockbrokers. The Detroit Free Press paper today, October 24th, was delivered, and Helen read about the Washington trial of Albert Fall, President Harding, Secretary of the Interior, who was accused of taking a bribe of $100,000 from oil man Edward Doheny. Fall was elderly, was brought to the courtroom on a stretcher. Also in the paper, the Charlotte, North Carolina trial, where the state was trying a group of communists who sought to organize textile workers in Gastonia. It set off a bloody Gastonia labor battle years earlier, when police chief Orville Ornhaut was shot dead. But this wasn't what Helen was primarily reading. She sought out the stock market report and looked for Westinghouse. October 23rd, Wednesday, had been a bad day on Wall Street. There had been a large sell-off and then a general decline, creating a volume of over 6 million shares. This, on Wednesday, October 23rd, 
was the second greatest turnover in the history of the New York Stock Exchange. Helen Whedon wondered, how could Westinghouse lose 35 points in one day? This was no incidental matter. The Whedons now held almost 400 shares of Westinghouse, so the loss in value was close to $14,000. That was more than the Whedons had ever spent on anything. Their home was worth approximately 14000 in a good market. The Whedon's plan in 1927 was simple enough to buy 50 shares at a time, paying cash for half of it and getting the remainder on margin. In other words, borrowing to pay for the remainder of the shares. The first 50 shares cost them $70 per share, a lot of money for the Whedon's, and they'd used all their savings and borrowed some on Harry, Harry's life insurance policy to raise 1750 in cash to pay for half the value of the purchase. But they were confident. Day after day, Westinghouse was gaining. In March 1928, the stock reached 90, and Harry bought 100 shares. Harry had explained that by margining 50%, they bought 100 shares at 90, but actually only paid for 50 shares, or 4500 of the original 50 shares bought at 70, they still owed 1750 So Harry sold 20 shares at 90, netting 1800 paid his loan with the broker, and then owned 30 shares outright. You could do these things. Since the only cash they paid was that original 1750 that meant they bought 30 shares for approximately $59 per share, and the stock was now worth 90 there were ways that you could increase the amount of stock you had. For instance, to buy 100 shares at 90 at a 50% margin, they would need 4500 in cash. But Harry could collateralize 30 shares that they owned and receive 2500 And they took a personal loan at the bank for the remaining 2 k They actually bought 450 shares, but with each transaction, Harry paid off some part of the obligation by selling shares, then incurred larger debt to purchase additional new shares at a higher price. Harry was now dealing with three different banks. The stock was worth about 95000 Harry thought any day he could sell tomorrow and have 70000 in the bank. So enamored with Wall Street were they that Harry was entitled to one week's vacation each year, and the Whedons decided to go where many others went to vacation to visit Wall Street. They stayed in the Hotel Astor in Times Square and took a ride on the 7th Avenue IRT subway. They waited in a long line at the brokerage boardroom and went to the visitor's galley in the exchange. Everyone seemed to be grumpy on Wall Street. The roaring market caused never-ending work in back rooms in the brokerage firms. Employees worked through the night with crews desperately trying to keep up with the paperwork. To add to the stress, thousands of investors from all over the country and the world vacationed on Wall Street and watched. Some tourists had quit their jobs back home and decided to stay in New York City until they could get rich and retire. In the Detroit suburb, while Hella was preparing breakfast for the young children, there was a knock on the door. It was a Western Union messenger boy in his green uniform, visor cap, and leather knapsack. After receiving the telegram, Helen gave the boy a quarter. 
She opened the telegram. It read, Full amount of 15,457 due this day in Detroit. Mr. Executive, they are talking behind your back. You can show them you mean business. You can press on them the value of a letter from your firm. Swan Linen Stationery has depth and charm. You can feel its quality the minute you pick up a sheet of it. Write to us on your business letterhead for specimen sheets. We will gladly send them. Address, the Central Ohio Paper Company, Columbus, Ohio. Rarely can any health device be purchased by the layman with absolute confidence. But today, those who realize the tremendous benefits of tonic ultraviolet light baths are in a unique position. For hospitals, physicians, and sanitaria, the world over, have already set up standards to guide anyone in the selection of ultraviolet ray equipment. It was called Black Thursday. 13 million shares that day were traded, a record. The ticker tape could not keep up with the amount of orders. Then, on what was called Black Tuesday, probably the more well-known day, 16 million shares were traded, and the market had unmistakably crashed. But you wouldn't know it, turning the pages of Time magazine the next week. A belated ticker recorded gains in significant stocks. New York Central was three points above Monday's close. Hysteria, it was hoped, had met its master in the banking power of the United States, which appeared to have bought a good proportion of U.S. industry. So was the very hopeful note in the November 1st issue of Time magazine. 7 a.m., October 24, 1929. Eddie had bought the New York Times to read while waiting for the train to Providence, Rhode Island. The market lead was written by the highly respected Alexander Dana Noyes, and sentences that jumped out at Eddie included widest declines in history, conservatively estimated actual loss in market value on the New York Stock Exchange, about $4 billion. The final hour of trading was more violent because of its suddenness. The tremendous volume of trading, which reached a total of 2,600,000 shares in the hour between 2 and 3. Eddie called his brokerage. He reached the long-distance operator to connect to his broker on Wall Street. After several minutes, she said, Everything is busy, sir, she continued. The chief operator said New York calls are delayed between 1 and 2 hours because of traffic. Kublai Khan, mighty emperor and conqueror, was known and feared throughout Asia and Europe. He set his kinsmen to reign, confirming his action by conferring on them the insignia of his royal will, a seal. In the archives of Paris are still to be seen haughty letters to the kings of France, bearing the stamp of this proud seal. No royal document could gain more authority from a seal than does an investment that bears the guarantee and seal of the General Surety Company. Our booklet 
The seal that certifies safety gives important information and may be had by addressing Home Office, 340 Madison Avenue, New York. Modern accountancy points with pride to its inevitable service in the building of the mind of business. In the simple logic of its budget, in its detailed audit, its orderly control of physical activities, its system in management. It is a never-ending source of mental inspiration to the executive who is giving his life to put the best he has into the building of a better business. Ernst & Ernst Accountants. These are ads from the November 1st, 1929 issue of Time magazine after what we know to be the Wall Street market crash, but it was business as usual for the most part in anyone that was reading Time magazine in that issue. All the blue chips of the late bull market were hammered and sliced. The better the stock, the bigger the break. On this day, AT&T fell 24 points. Columbia Carbon, 61. Consolidated Gas, 20. Electric Power and Light, 13. General Electric, 47. Eastman Kodak, 41. Otis Elevator, 60. New York Central, 22. Montgomery Ward, 15. In Rio de Janeiro, the coffee market, already frightened, closed altogether. But in Chicago, a bushel of wheat was worth three cents more. Tuesday also brought a quota of cheerful utterances. Said T.B. McCauley, president of the Sun Life Assurance Company of Canada, the present crisis in the stock market squeezes out inflation caused by speculation. Despite the rapid Thursday afternoon recovery, the low point of the swinging pendulum cut off many a speculative head. Roaring was the business done by downtown speakeasies. Wild were the rumors of ruin and suicide. Estimates of the number of margineers closed out varies from 20 to 70 percent. They'll know if your bank uses Lamont. Your bank may be the best bank in town, but out-of-towners you do business with may not know the difference. A check that looks as if it's issued by the best bank in town is often the only way you have to suggest the strength of your banking connection. Your check, made on Lamont National Safety Paper, is a voucher for your own good taste. There's unmistakable dignity and richness in this distinctive check paper. That's why more than 60% of the progressive banks in this country have adopted a Lamont safety paper, recognized as the standard in banking. Soundly anticlimactic was the remainder of the trading week. The recovery of Thursday afternoon had brought most of the list back to within a few points of its Thursday opening. In the two final days, an unofficial but obviously potent banking pool stood ready to prevent a retreat from becoming a rout, a recession from developing into a panic. I have to point out that 1929 was one of those times when recession was the good word, that it's a slight dip. Most of the coverage you can see from Time Magazine at the time is focusing on the people who are short-selling. Those are the big villains, those who are shorting companies, right, bringing down prices. And also the people who are selling too quickly, who are panicking. For so many months, so many people had saved money and borrowed money and borrowed on their borrowings to possess themselves of the little pieces of paper by virtue of which they've become partners in U.S. industry. Now they're trying to get rid of them even more frantically than when they had tried to get them. 8 a.m., October 24th, 1929. Edward de Plancet's new board, 
was the managing partner at the brokerage firm of Raymond and Company. There were strong voices echoing that the economy of the U.S. was sound, including President Hoover. John Raskob, the head of the Democratic Party, also said so. Raskob was a financial executive of both DuPont and GM. He was right now building the Empire State Building. Every banker in New York commented on the prosperity, the durability of the economy. From his mansion, Newbord called Jules Barnish, partner at the firm. Barnish was more informed and spent hours reading the Times, Herald Tribune, Wall Street Journal, and other publications. And Barnish had been up all night. Barnish said, If we call our loans and if everyone pays promptly, we'll come out clean. But you know, and I know, that many of our customers have been carrying too much margin. Call money was once private borrowing preserve of professional speculators and became accessible during this time to many newcomers whose financial resources remained unchecked and whose financial acumen under adversity had yet to be proved. Call money was loaned by brokers for short periods of time, from 7 to 30 days, to finance stock purchases. With margins as low as 10%, investors could buy stock with only 10% in cash and take a broker's call loan for the balance. The interest rate was 12% per year, which speculators didn't regard generally as excessive so long as there was a rising market. Almost everyone had faith the market would continue to rise and chose to hypothecate their stock. That meant they would pledge it without actually delivering it and get long-term loans from the bank. Brokers borrowed from banks. They loaned it to their customers for margin trades. Banks required the collateral from the brokers. Brokers provided it in the form of the hypothecated stocks. In February... The Federal Reserve Board stated that brokers had borrowed nearly $5.4 billion to finance margin trades. The board warned that the practice was taking too much money out of the regular market. Cash was needed for other businesses. Paul Warburg was a member of the Federal Reserve Board from 1914 to 1918. He issues a warning about stock prices and about margin buying. And the Warburg warning in March 1929, caused banks to withdraw dollars from the market, setting off a minor crash. Edward Henry Harriman Simmons, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, made fears disappear. The president of the New York Stock Exchange since 1924 said, the stock market was the safest form of investment known in this country. Yet by October 21st, this was Monday, there were so many selling orders that the ticker dropped behind. On Tuesday, October 22nd, Charles Mitchell, the chairman of the board of the National City Bank, regarded as an expert, stated categorically that he regarded the market as sound and predicted it would correct itself. In what was called Wobbly Wednesday by some, ice storms severed phone lines, telegraphs, and jitters through the isolated Midwest, sending prices plummeting on the exchange. Unprecedented number of margin calls. Only professionals and insiders were worried. When asked, professionals publicly made glowing statements reflecting confidence. Both Newbord and Barnish knew that if market prices continued to tumble and collateralized stock had less value, the banks would demand cash to cover part of the loans. They were also obliged to maintain cash reserves as required by the Board of Governors of the New York Stock Exchange. 
On the commission business alone, it was doubtful they could remain in business another 48 hours. They had to hang on. Barnish warned Newbord about going into the office that morning. Keep away from those crowds. Don't wear that expensive-looking black Hamburg, pricey hat, or your Chesterfield coat. As his driver took him to work, read the New York Times, prices of stock crash in heavyweight liquidation, a total drop of billions, paper loss of $4 billion, 2,600,000 shares sold in the final hour of the record decline, many accounts wiped out, organized backing absent, a new term developed in the coming days, buxed from margin calls. People busted or buxed because they didn't have enough bucks. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. There's two things that should be known about the history of Wall Street, and one is that the street didn't have a wall for a hundred years before stock trading became synonymous with the name of the street. And also, it's not the first place where stocks were traded in American and official capacity. That distinction goes to Philadelphia, the largest city in the American colonies, largest hub of commerce, and capital of the early American Republic. In 1746, at a meeting of the Philadelphia Board of Aldermen, James Hamilton, mayor, represented to the board that it had always been customary for mayors of Philadelphia, at the time of their going out of office, to give an entertainment to the gentlemen of the corporation, the stock exchange, and... He wanted to do something different. Now, first of all, you have to know that this is interesting, that a mayor is throwing a party for the rich financiers and not the other way around. But he wants to do something different. Instead of giving an entertainment to the gentlemen of the exchange, he intended, in lieu thereof, to give a sum of money equal, at least to the sum usually expended on such occasions, to be laid out in something permanently useful to the city. He proposed the sum of 150 pounds toward erecting an exchange or other public building. I bet you some of the operators of the exchange were a little upset that they weren't getting a party, but it laid the foundation of stock trading in Philadelphia. Mayor Hamilton's fund grew. It was never used to fund an exchange, by the way. It eventually went to build a new city hall in 1775. Instead, Philadelphia merchants started their own subscription system. Robert Morris, the key financier of the revolution, signer of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Willing, Archibald McCall, Teach Francis, and over 200 other merchants put up 348 pounds to finance the opening of the London Coffee House in 1754. 
William Bradford, a printer, operated it. Now, it might seem strange today to see a coffee house as the center of all stock trading, but it was called the London Coffee House because they were mirroring the same in the city of London. In fact, the very street that the London Coffee House in Philadelphia was on, High Street and Front Street, part of the Philadelphia waterfront, now it's a part of a highway. High Street is also what we might call a main street. High Street's what in in Britain they would use to designate the, the principal street in a city. So on High Street and Front Street in Philadelphia, the London Exchange developed. Now, London had a long history, and that's why they were they wanted this to be as prestigious and hence the name London. The London Coffee House, despite its name, was the center of opposition from Philadelphia's merchants to oppressive British tax and merchant policies. John Adams met there. Dr. Benjamin Rush, Robert Morris. It was a few blocks away from what we now know as Independence Hall. And the London Coffee House was closed during the brief British occupation of Philadelphia and was opened again in 1778. As the activities became more complex that they were engaging with, securities brokers in Philadelphia decided to distinguish themselves from other merchants. They established an exclusive organization, the Philadelphia Board of Brokers, officially licensed in 1790. There weren't too many limited liability corporations to trade in those days, so it was usually not corporate stocks, but rather government and semi-government paper that traded on the exchange. For example, 1791, promoters floated an issue of shares in the First Bank of the United States, and within a month, the shares quadrupled in price. When the Schuylkill and Susquehanna Navigation Company offered 1,000 shares to the public at 400 per share, the issue was 40 times oversubscribed, and a lottery was held to select those who would be lucky enough to get to buy the stock. This stock exchange in Philadelphia served as a place where public works would be funded. Here's what uh, a Pennsylvania miller wrote. Large quantities of wheat and other produce and flour manufactured here in Middleton, Pennsylvania, and which are to be forwarded by land, remain on hand for want of teams, which are terrified by the bad and dangerous roads over the Conewago and other hills. This occasions that such produce will often come late to market. The Pennsylvania legislature, on April 9, 1792, passed an act enabling the government to incorporate a company for making an artificial road from Philadelphia to Lancaster. The Philadelphia Lancaster Turnpike Company, the first turnpike in the United States, issued 1,000 shares at $300 per share. Soon, subscriptions for 2,276 shares were received, and the price rose to $1,000 within days. And the turnpike was excellent. It was scarcely possible to go one mile on the road, a traveler said, without meeting numbers of wagons passing and repassing between the back parts of our state and Philadelphia. Soon, a subscription was floated to finance an extension called the Lancaster and Susquehanna Turnpike, which was soon carrying heavy traffic and with a few years paying dividends. In 1792, the earliest record of securities quotations in the United States, published as The Price of Current Stocks, 
was printed on a three-by-six-inch paper and signed by Samuel Anderson, stockbroker, at number 104 Chestnut Street, Philadelphia. While it might seem strange, we think of coffee houses as places to go before you go to work. And I guess sometimes there is business conducted there, right? You see maybe in a Starbucks, someone conducting a a light job interview or, or meeting with someone in their industry. But the coffee house and coffee just became synonymous with trading stocks and gold and other items. And the London Stock Exchange actually began functioning in a coffee house, Jonathan's Coffee House, in 1698, one year before the wall was actually taken down on Wall Street. And slowly, Jonathan's Cafe in London grew into one of the most polished and professional financial institutions in the world. When London was destroyed by fire, it was soon rebuilt. And when it was rebuilt... In 1773, it was actually called the Stock Exchange. Here's a a very old, from the 1690s, a description of what coffee houses were like. Anyone who's ever complained about a $3 or $4 cup of coffee, you might see something in here they recognize. A coffee house is a lake conventicle. Good fellowship turned Puritan. Ill husbandry and masquerade whither people come after topping all day to purchase at the expense of the last penny, the repute of sober companions. A rota room that, like Noah's Ark, received animals of every sort, from the precise diminutive brand to the hectoring cravat in cups in folio. A nursery for training up the smaller fry of virtuosi in confident tattling or a cabal of kiddling critics that have only learnt to spit and mew. A mint of intelligence that make each man his penny worth draws out in petty parcels what the merchant receives in bullion. He that comes often saves two pence a week in gazettes and has his news and coffee for the same charge, as at a three-penny ordinary they would give you broth for your chop of mutton. This is an exchange where haberdashers of political smallwares meet and mutually abuse each other and the public with bottomless stories and headless notions, the rendezvous of idle pamphlets, and persons more idly employed to read them, a high court of justice, where every little fellow in a camlet cloak takes up upon him the transpose affairs both in church and state. Captain Allman, sir, the man of mouth, with a voice louder than the speaking trumpet, he begins to you the story of a sea fight. And though he were never further by water than the beer garden or cuckle's head, yet having pirated the names of ships and captains, he persuades you he himself was present and put out with his breath the fire ship that fell foul on them. So goes a popular feeling about coffee houses in the 1690s. Nine AM, October twenty fourth, nineteen twenty nine. Marcy Fritton tended to his cows on his farm in Oklahoma. The Holstein cows were fed on experimental grass imported from Europe and distributed by Love County on behalf of USDA. The grass was made to withstand the Oklahoma summer better than native grasses. The Fittons grew cotton, wheat, and garden vegetables. 
They produced milk and raised beef. Carrie, his wife, shouted, Marcy, come quick, broadcast on the radio about the stock market. Marcy was a believer in Samuel Insull, an Englishman and a former secretary to Thomas Edison, and Insull was said to live on an all-electric farm, reported to be worth one million. At this time, half of the United States was electrified, but some regions, much of the South, was not. Insull's men, who visited Oklahoma, persuaded Marcy to put in a bid for a block of 200 shares of Insull Utility Investments at $125. There was no way for the Frittens to check at that hour on the actual price of the stock at that day. The purchase that Marcy made was achieved by paying 20% margin on 5000 which cleaned out Fritton's savings. Before Marcy's loan for 20000 was due, the stock had increased to 155 and then 160 This permitted Marcy to buy an additional 50 shares, and they dreamed of an all-electric farm for themselves. The Frittens listened to the broadcast on their Atwater Kent all-electric radio. News of the day included a young pilot. They heard, The actual loss in value has been estimated by experts at about $4 billion. It's calculated that the nation's shareholders yesterday sustained losses of about $6 billion. Carrie said, Call Samuel Insull. Marcy said, I can't call Samuel Insull. Why not? You gave him all of our dollars. I bought the stock from the George Rentham Company of Oklahoma City. The ice storm had isolated tens of thousands of Midwestern and Western stockholders. Insull was in a secluded penthouse in Chicago. He was thinking about the investigation that begun against him. Where are you going to get the $200 plus commission, Carrie said, while Marcy was going out the door. Thursday, October 24th, 1929, 10 a.m. Newbert's office at Raymond and Company had been filled with spectators since 9 a.m. There had been a multitude of people on the street, and it was hard to walk, even in the middle of the road, not to mention the sidewalk. And as Newbert left the car, he told his chauffeur to get home as fast as he could. It took Newbert 15 minutes to walk one block to his office. There was a long wait at the elevators. Many were out-of-towners. The floor and the hall were filled with people and smoke. Three dozen brokerage firms maintained private wire systems to branch offices corresponding throughout the nation on matters of major policy. William Crawford, superintendent of the Exchange Records Department, opened promptly at 10 a.m. There was a private loop phone with a direct line on the trading floor. When Jules Barnish approached his boardroom, prices were posted on three walls. He heard the beginnings of a low rumble which swelled and built in volume as he approached. They're selling. They're dumping. Jules Barnish called to Newboard. They're moving too fast. Sell at market. Sell at market. Newboard says to Barnish, we have to start calling in loans. On the trading floor, Post 2 is the trading home of steel. The big industry. Someone said... There's a fight at post two. 
Angus felt the worker on the floor pushed his way through the room. He was holding a six-inch wide sheet of paper, which he gave to Newboard. It was Dow Jones tape. In blue capital letters, it had been printing earnings report when someone had typed, Bust it! Bust it! There was a message that made Newboard pale. At 10.30 a.m., the New York City ticker tape was running 15 minutes behind. The curb exchange ticker tape at the same hour was running 16 minutes behind. There was a roar from the crowd at post two. Steel broke 200. She's down to 199. Buyers and sellers of U.S. steel stocks throughout the world were sending orders to brokers, and brokers were relaying to post two orders that couldn't possibly be matched up. Specialists couldn't match orders to buy at certain prices with orders to sell at certain prices. You won't have information on what's happening this minute until a half hour from now, was heard in the gallery. A barish from the floor to Newboard's office. There's a bunch of brass up there in the visitor's galley. They've got Winston Churchill with them. Winston Churchill, here at this day. He had recently been ousted by, from his post by the victory of the Labourite government of James Ramsay MacDonald in June. Churchill was standing besides Richard Whitney, vice president of the exchange, and he left a few minutes later to keep a lunch date. The very stock market of Philadelphia that had financed roads and canals around it might have been financing its own undoing if it didn't get creative. In 1791, the sound of hooves pounding and coaches wheeling over the dirt highway near New Brunswick, New Jersey were a sign that something was going on. Not less than 20 expresses have passed through the city within one week from New York to Philadelphia and back, a wandering newsman reported. They travel with uncommon speed, from which it appears that something of great importance is carrying on. Through the roads of New Jersey, speeding coaches clattering were carrying speculators and stock jobbers and agents of foreign investors, inside traders too, with privileged information that could move the market at the expense of the Philadelphia merchants who were trading in the coffee houses in exchange. It was fairly easy. Many of the ships were arriving first to New York from London with news, with prices, with goods. The fact that the ship arrived at all could be a particular news item. It would be run over New Jersey and by morning, a certain jobber may have an advantage in the market. What were the merchants to do? They came up with an ingenious system. Philadelphia brokers set up signal stations at high points across New Jersey. Signalmen would watch through telescopes as coded flashes of light brought news of stock prices, lottery numbers, and other important information. Precisely done, it could move information from New York to Philadelphia in as little as 10 minutes. It's the original telegraph. You know, the word telegraph just means printing from a distance, information from a distance. The original telegraphs were optical telegraphs, signals, and not 
electronic. Indeed, the invention of the telegraph in the 1840s, which is going to have a big influence on everything we're talking about here, on the stock markets in particular, was merely an improvement on the telegraph system. During the 1790s, at the height of the French Revolution, France had enemies on all sides and needed a swift and reliable communication system. The Netherlands, Prussia, Austria, Spain, France were controlled by the British. There had to be a way to communicate news. So in 1790, two brothers set about devising a system of communication that would follow the central government. They sent messages. 1794, when they were able to communicate a French victory over the Austrians less than an hour after it occurred and travel 143 miles using an optical system. It didn't work like you might think with a blinking light, because that actually would lead to confusion. You wanted a solid light, but to move that light in various places, think of a clock mechanism that each one would signal different words. The person at each telegraph station would have a code book and be able to transfer the system. The semaphore, so it was called, was composed of two black movable wooden arms connected by a crossbar. The positions of all three of these components together indicated an alphabetic letter. With counterweights on the arm, the system was controlled by two handles and mechanically simple and reasonably robust in its vocabulary. You could have a total of 196 symbols. The system was so good that Napoleon Bonaparte used it to quickly communicate with his armies. But it also was expensive. It required train operators not too far from each other. Similar optical telegraphs were set up in Boston, connecting Boston with the shipping going on in Martha's Vineyards, most namely, notably, when did a certain ship arrive? Very important news to know. One of the principal hills in San Francisco was named Telegraph Hill. That's not because it was electronic telegraph up there. It was an opti- originally an optical telegraph established in 1849 to signal the arrival of ships. These optical telegraphs were used up until 1880 when the last one in service in Sweden went out. Even with this telegraphic advantage, and although the Philadelphia Stock Exchange does exist today, they you know, fairly recently got a new building. Um, obviously, the idea of getting information from where it was most happening was attractive. And in 1792, 24 prominent brokers and merchants gathered on Wall Street to sign the Buttonwood Agreement under a Buttonwood tree. The tree, only in the 1990s, was replaced by a smaller one. And it's really in the, during the War of 1812 when the market in New York, the market for securities, really grows. And in 1817, a constitution of the New York Stock Exchange with rules for conduct is adopted. Call market procedures were set up where the president would read out the list of stocks. Brokers would trade each security in its turn. In 1824, a peak of 380,000 shares are traded on the New York Stock Exchange in that year. And in 1825, when the Erie Canal opens, its bonds are traded actively on the exchange. In 1836, trading on the street is prohibited. And it's in 1844 when you start seeing electronic telegraphs connecting the exchange market with brokers and with investors outside New York City. 
1853, complete statements are required from companies of their shares outstanding and their capital resources. New board opened two windows in the corners of his office. It was hot. He was sweating. And he glanced down Broad Street. There was a solid jam. The crowd had backed up to the sub-treasury building on Wall Street. There was an angry roar with mournful undertones. New board thought the crowd was not far from violence. New York Stock Exchange ticker was 48 minutes behind the training. And over $6 billion had been lost by American investors. In Washington, Senator Carter Glass of Virginia demanded an immediate curb on credit and a federal excise tax on securities to dampen speculation. In London, on the London street market, there was pandemonium just before its close, 11 a.m. New York time. Almost universally, the foreign press blamed American speculators for attracting capital dollars of their countries. Wall Street edition papers, usually on the streets between 4 and 5 p.m. with the closing price, were forced to go to press with deeply depressed noontime prices. Immediately, there were rumors about suicides. There were rumors that four speculators had committed suicides by jumping out of buildings. This is something that's been commonly stated throughout the history of the, of the events of these various days, and it's not really true, although there were individuals who took their lives. The jumping out of building things did not really happen. The president of the stock exchange during this day was on Hawaii on his honeymoon. VP of the exchange, Whitney, was in Far Hills, New Jersey, as the president steward of the racing program for Essex Foxhounds. Newbird received a message from his secretary. Colonel John Prentice of Hornblower and Weeks has called a meeting of all heads of wirehouses ASAP after the close of the market to be held in his office at 42 Broadway. By 11.30 a.m., October 24, 1929, VP Whitney announced that the visitor's galley would be closed to the public at 12 p.m. noon. The Buffalo Stock Exchange was closed, and the Chicago Exchange would also close at noon. A man fainted on the street. No ambulance could get through the sea of people. And the man was carried by people three blocks uphill to Broadway. It was a beautiful day, sunny as the temperature rose to 60 degrees. VP of the Stock Exchange Whitney began his walk to J.P. Morgan as a rumor began that Thomas Lamont was calling a meeting. The head of the U.S. largest, richest private investment bank, J.P. Morgan, was in Europe. The acting CEO, Thomas Lamont, aristocratic, scholarly, and even if Morgan was there, in control. Lamont's most interested listeners included President Hoover, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, and the presidents of both the New York Stock Exchange and the Curb Exchange. The exact time that Lamont talked was not recorded, though most say before noon, and what he said was not known. What is known is that Lamont met with four of Wall Street's most powerful bankers. 12 noon, Thursday, October 24th, 1929. Whitney, Whitney, who is vice president of the exchange, is also brother of the Morgan partner, George Whitney. George was a senior partner in communications and the floor trader. Richard 
did the buying and selling for the Morgan account, and he was very well regarded in the exchange. At 12.20, Charles Mitchell appeared. Mitchell was the chairman of the board of directors of the National City Bank. On Tuesday, just two days before, he returned from Europe and told the press the market was solid and sound. Mitchell's appearance set off about 5,000 phone calls. Albert Wigan, the chairman of the board of directors of Chase National Bank, walked from his office. So did William Potter, president of Guarantee Trust Company, and Seward Prosser, chairman of the board of directors of the Bankers Trust Company. As Prosser entered into view, a cheer began on Wall Street, which was picked up and spread to those in front of the sub-treasury building to the north and then south to Broad Street. The cheer lasted 30 seconds. Lamont called for a press conference, and newsmen arrived. The four bankers and Lamont represented more than $6 billion in bank resources. Even before the meeting began, prices of some stocks began to firm up. Yet the meeting in Lamont's office lasted exactly 20 minutes, and the five bankers looked unafraid. There has been a little distress, Lamont said to the newsman. There has been a little distress selling on the stock exchange, and we've held a meeting of the heads of several financial institutions to discuss the situation. We have found that there are no brokerage houses in difficulty, and reports from brokers indicate that margins are being maintained satisfactory. The banks would be intact and would not lose much. It is the consensus of the group that many of the quotations in the stock exchange do not fairly represent the situation. Some reporters later said that Lamont made a statement about the Federal Reserve Board. Other reporters said he did not. In later interviews, Lamont denied that he had. The word was out and spread that Lamont expected the Federal Reserve Board at its meeting that day had decided to take action. Heads of commission houses began immediately to buy stocks for their own accounts. It's possible that Lamont was directly trying to pressure the Federal Reserve Board in session in D.C. into authorizing the Federal Reserve Bank to lower its discount rate, freeing up billions in credit to help Wall Street. At 12.30 p.m., the ticker tape was 100 minutes late in recording and posting quotations. And though millions of accounts had been sold out and closed and margin calls had been made and not honored, the paperwork was so far behind, but that no one knew how many had already been wiped out. It was an estimate that 12 million accounts were liquidated, meaning that 12 million Americans were broke or nearly broke, and their life savings have evaporated. Many brokers joined clients in being wiped out and ruined as their own accounts were liquidated. Newsmen spread the news. The big banks are going to support the market. Lamont hadn't really said anything, and no banker in the group had really said that. But the image was clearly, the impression was clearly made. By 12.30, the panic was at its peak on the trading floor. It was technically impossible to match these sell orders with buy orders. It was an exercise in desperation. The noise was deafening, with more than 1,000 traders jammed onto the floor. Overheard on the floor. If someone began buying a lot of buy orders and to come into the office and in our branches, I don't know what we'd use for dollars to execute the orders. The Washington, D.C. Federal Reserve Board was in closed executive session, issuing no statements. In the Narragansett Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, Eddie treated himself to a noontime shower bath. 
He was hot and sweaty from his quick trip to Fall River and excited at the prospects it offered. He was nervous because he couldn't reach his broker in New York. He tried again as soon as he entered his room. He was telling himself when his phone rang. It was the operator, and she had reported that finally she had succeeded in placing his call to New York. Hello, Max. Max, this is Eddie Gallant. What's the market doing? Eddie, you call me to ask a stupid question like that? How's it doing? It's doing bad. Real bad. That's how. Well, I wanted to check on my Radio Corporation of America stock. Eddie, you ain't got too much Radio Corporation of America stock. We had to sell you out. It's now down to 48. 48, can you imagine that? Didn't know where to reach you. We asked the bank for money to cover your margin loan, but they said you didn't have that kind of discretionary account. We had to sell you out. My God, Max, that's my life savings. More than that, Eddie. You'll still be owing us, I'm afraid. Well, how about my commercial solvents? Commercial solvents you still got, Eddie. It's down a little, maybe 20 points. But we haven't had to call your margin loan on it. Yet. I repeat, Eddie, yet. Well, sell some, Max. Sell some to cover the loan. Leave me some, for heaven's sake. Sell? Sell, Eddie, to whom? Come on, Max, there's a market out there someplace. Okay, I'll do my best. At 1.45, Jules Barnes was munching on his sandwich and appraising his senior partner. You don't seem to be as cheered by this as I thought you might be, Newbord said. No, I'm not, Barnish said. I just can't see this making any great difference. It's happening too late. Too late in the session, too late in the day. Should have been done yesterday. Ah, but prices are turning around, Jules, Newbord said. You just have been quoting some remarkable improvements. So I have, Ed, but let's not kid ourselves about these rising prices. In the first place, when he has put an artificial prop under some of the leading stock, it looks good, but doesn't mean much. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Thomas Alva Edison is associated with American industry and invention. He invented many things. But he didn't invent the telegraph. The time Edison was born in Port Huron, Michigan, in 1847, during the Polk presidency, telegraphs had struggled to get into acceptance by the public. Wheatstone and Cook had introduced a ponderous magnetic needle instrument. And in 1840, Morse, Samuel Morse, had taken out his first patent on an electromagnetic telegraph. The memorable message in 1844, What hath God wroth? 
was sent by young Miss Ellsworth over his circuits. And an incredulous Washington was advised by wire of the action of the Democratic Convention in nominating Polk in 1844. By the time Edison is born, circuits are strung up between Washington and New York, and the system is in use. But it's crude and primitive. Poles are 200 feet apart, could barely hold up a wash line. Slim, bare copper wire could snap easily. And circuits were down for 36 days at a time. The little glass knob insulators were often targeted by ignorant sportsmen. Attempts to insulate the line were limited to coating with tar or smearing it with wax, which seemed to bring the benefit only for the bees in the neighborhood. At the time Edison is born, the farthest west that the telegraph is going to go out is Pittsburgh, but this would change. The Edisons were not rich by any means, but they were in comfortable circumstances. A well-stocked farm and large orchard, Samuel Edison became a dealer in grain and feed, and also was active in the lumber industry. Electricity at that moment could have no allure for a youthful mind. Crude telegraphy represented what was known of it practically. Even if it had not been so, the inclinations of the boy, barely 10 years old, were towards chemistry. And 50 years later, there is no change in predilection. It sounds like heresy to say that Edison became an electrician by chance. But it's the sober fact One of the earliest stories about his boyhood relates to the incident where he induced a lad employed in the family to swallow a large quantity of powders in his belief that the gases generated would enable him to fly. The agonies of the victim attracted attention, and Edison's mother marked her displeasure by an application of the switch kept behind the old Seth Thomas grandfather clock. The disastrous result of his experiment did not discourage Edison at all, as he attributed the failure to the lad rather than to motive power. In the cellar of the Edison homestead, young Alva soon accumulated a chemical outfit, constituting the first in a long series of laboratories. And as a man and not even 21, so-called tramp telegraph operator, one of numerous young men who seemed to invade the Union-controlled area during the Civil War, bringing with them cash and 1860s electromagnetic know-how and high stress, This man joined the ranks of the unemployed like so many after the war. No war, no arms, no need for wires, and no need for news. Communications between Lincoln and McClellan or Lincoln and Grant. Edison lived through the sometimes monotonous, sometimes very stressful life of a telegraph tramp. All the while, while conducting the telegraph operation in Cincinnati and then Louisville, Kentucky, He continued his inventions, and he continued his writing. Telegraph operator, in some ways, was the center of the universe. And as Edison said, the newspapers that he would telegraph for allowed him to come in after the press at 3 a.m. and get all of the exchanges that I wanted. I never slept more than a few hours. I was thus kept posted and knew every member of Congress and all of the topical doings as well as the prices of breadstuffs in all the markets. His reading was not incidental, but was important because in the days of rotting wires in the 1860s, as much as a fifth of a message would be lost in transmitting between the keys, and Edison would have to fill in some details. Sometimes he'd get things wrong. 
Edison's telegraph job provided him with knowledge, a paycheck, and also a fraternity, a kind of club of telegraph operators throughout the country that he could rely on. It was not long before he got a job at the Franklin Telegraph Company in Boston, and he tells the story. The weather being cold and being clothed poorly, my peculiar appearance caused much mirth, and as I afterward learned, the night operators had conspired together to put up a job on the guy from the Woolly West. I waited an hour, and they asked me to to a table to take a special report from the Boston Herald. They arranged to have one of the New York operators, a fast sender, to put me through the ringer, slowly increase the speed of the keys and the transmission, as Edison relayed his message. Then it got faster, then absurdly fast. But I easily adopted my pace, Edison said, and he noticed the other operators were all watching him around the table now. They planned to laugh at him, but now they were amazed as he was taking every letter down. I knew then they were putting a job on me, but I kept my own control. And then, instead of going fast, the New York operator began to slur, running telegraph signals together and sticking the keys so that the words were hard to determine. I was not the least bit discomforted, Edison said. In fact, he counter-jabbed on the other line and sent a telegraph message. Say, young man, send with your other foot. Which made the other operator laugh. Someone else had to take over. He worked there in Boston, all the while continuing his experimentation, not only in electric, but also in chemistry. At noon, in the Detroit suburb, Helen Whedon tried desperately to reach her husband in New York. She was told the toll lines to New York were tied up. She had received calls from two banks. Harry had loans of 15000 secured by stock that he no longer owned. At the Narragansett Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, Eddie Gallant could not reach his broker in New York. When he finally reached him, he learned that he had lost his life savings. His curtain time was an hour away. At 1 p.m., for 1 p.m., Thursday, October 24, 1929, for 30 to 40 minutes, stock exchange specialists were unsung heroes of the day. Performing functions is market stabilizers. These specialists must support markets when declining. They have stock available for sale when it's rising, and they place themselves in a profitless position, managing affairs with lightning speed, incredible precision. With one misstep, a stock exchange specialist can be wiped out financially. Richard Whitney believed in elitism and made his own rules. He went to Harvard. He appeared at 1.30. Richard Whitney appeared on the trading floor sort of as a Moses. 100 to 1,000 people or so parted so that Whitney could walk by. Whitney went to post two, the steel post, and in a loud voice placed an order for 10,000 shares of U.S. steel at $205. It was the most celebrated order in stock exchange history. 
Whitney then stepped to the next post and placed a large order for General Motors at 57 and 38. He went post to post. Soon, Whitney had placed orders totaling more than 20 million. Whitney's supporting the market, you could hear. Bankers are supporting the market. It's turned around. Prices are going up. It was bedlam as 10,000 voices made for a thunderous roar. Whitney was an instant hero. At brokerage offices throughout the country at 1.30 p.m., the ticker printing price quotes of transactions were from 11.30 a.m. Sales of afternoon papers increased approximately 30% from the day before. 50,000 clerical workers would work through the night with no break. But Whitney was a hero. The jubilation was heard from broad in Wall Streets and throughout the land. It was the 1920s, a revolutionary time in some ways, but still a time of struggle. There was the electric icebox, chain stores, mass distribution, new gas stoves, electric washing machines, vitaphones in theaters, new bridges. Wall Street got as much attention as sports in Hollywood. But children were still working in textile mills and all had to ask permission to go to the restroom. A square foot of land in the financial district cost more than 100 acres in most of the country. In 1929, Walter P. Chrysler announced he was building the world's tallest skyscraper at 42nd and Lex, across from Grand Central Station. Stock prices began to rise in 1924 through the year of 1929. In 1926, there was a big sell-off, but not much damage. In 1928, there was a sudden collapse of prices when it was learned that the Republican National Convention accepted Coolidge's refusal to run for re-election. Buyers feared that Coolidge's withdrawal would damage the economy. Millions of speculators were betting on prices, yet most would not know what an annual report of a company is, how to read it, or even how to get it. Secretary of Commerce Hoover worried about speculation and urged both President Harding and Coolidge to take action. Both refused. He was now president and didn't take any steps. On September 5, 1929, Roger Babson, an analyst from Wellesley, Massachusetts, addressed a financial analyst luncheon in Boston and said, I repeat, sooner or later a crash is coming. This was known as the Babson break. Although he did many things, Edison did not invent the stock ticker. That distinction goes to Edward Callahan. He wrote this. In 1867, at Broad Street, opposite the stock exchange today, there was a building for golden stocks. It had one main entrance from the street to a hallway, from which two prominent brokers' offices was obtained. Each firm had its own army of boys, normally 12 to 15 of them, whose duties were to ascertain the latest quotation. Each boy diverted their attention to a particular stock, pushing each other in narrow queues, yelling out prices out the door <laughs> to be relayed to the building across the street. I naturally thought that much of the noise and confusion could be dispensed with, so Callahan said. And he built an inductor, a mechanical magnetic system with two dials, which would reflect the current price in the way a thermometer or maybe more like the accelerator in your car might 
But Callahan knew this wasn't enough just to produce an indicator. He had to produce data as well. So he developed a printer. And because of the sound that it would make when the stock was ticked into the tape, it was called a ticker. Edison knew of the development of the Callahan Gold Ticker and had his own stock ticker in the works as he was working in Boston. Actually had a small client base for his own stock ticker there and had it in hand when he came to New York. He arrived in New York with a loan from a fellow telegraph operator. He had no job initially, but did get a place to stay in the gold telegraph office in the basement, in the battery room. By his third day there in New York, he had his transformational moment. There was a crash in Callahan's gold ticker system. The boys were running to the exchange from every brokerage, and the man in charge was too flustered to do anything or to fix the system. Edison tells the tale. I ventured to say that I knew what the trouble was. And the man who was in charge of him said, Fix it! Fix it! I got to the central ticker, removed the spring, and set the contact wheels to zero. I then told the boys to tell all their brokerage firms to also set theirs accordingly. Within two hours, it was working again. The next day, I was put in charge of the system at $300 per month. Such a violent jump in pay for anybody I had ever seen before. Edison didn't invent the stock ticker, but he did improve the stock ticker. His design was a bit compact, uh, in a transparent globe. It was sleek. Steve Jobs would have been impressed, but but his innovation wasn't just an an Apple-like box. It was also in a Gates-like network. His ticker, the Edison ticker, would link up to the central exchange and fix the exact error that had occurred on that day. It used a complex screw that the system could then be pushed by the master ticker at the central exchange to make sure all units were in line. And his perfected ticker between 1871 and 1874 sold 5,000 boxes. Edison used the money to buy a laboratory in New Jersey. 20 years later, the New York Stock Exchange bought the patent outright from Edison, and they developed their own model and was sped up in 1900. The second generation off Edison's model was not enough for the events of Black Thursday or Black Tuesday in 1929. An improved ticker, too late, would be developed in the early 1930s that could handle all the quotations on the system. By 1964, you had electric boards that would light up in the exchange hall. And the Quotron 2 appeared in 1962 and used a magnetic tape device to store stock prices from the ticker and call it up when a broker needed it in their system from the magnetic tape so they didn't have to just keep watching the ticker go and worry about the ticker falling behind. It looked like a mixture of an old calculator with a thin little rectangular screen, maybe a mix with an old touchtone phone. The Quotron took off. Even when it was bought by Citicorp in 1986, it had 60% of the brokerage markets for information systems. 
Still had 30,000 users in 1994, but then was replaced by the Bloomberg and now by Internet Systems. Information technology, not surprising. Communications technology, not surprisingly. One of America's greatest inventors, not surprisingly, get their start in the transmission of financial information where fortunes are at stake. Three PM, Thursday, October twenty fourth, nineteen twenty nine. Sheer madness at the stock market. Two thousand two hundred men. Last few minutes of trading. Noise heard on William Street. The tape was now thought to be more than four hours behind the orders. Jules Barris tells Newboard, Yesterday we had seventeen million stockholders. There aren't three million left now. On Broad Street. Two fights broke out. Police couldn't get through the solid wall of humans. After 2.30, a spectator from the street entered the building onto the trading floor. He began to scream and wave his arms. He was later sent to Bellevue Hospital. At 3 p.m., trading ends with a moment of silence. Then, a loud outcry. Men shouted, some cheers, some boos, rebel yells. There were loud groans, too. And some men cried. Over 12 million shares had been traded. At the time, it was the largest volume in history. On a regular day, 30 policemen patrolled stock exchange areas. On this day, there were 10 additional cops, 20 mounted men, 20 additional detectives, experts on pickpockets or so-called dip artists. Barricades have been placed at Wall and Broadway and Pine and Liberty. 4 p.m., October 24, 1929. Harry Whedon emerged from the Times Square station of the main Flushing IRT subway after spending the day in the factory in Long Island City. People talked about the market all day, and Harry was vaguely worried. He bought the evening paper. He noted the quotes were from noon. He saw Westinghouse and thought it was a mistake. He bought a different evening paper, and then he knew that his profits were completely wiped out. He went to a cigar store on 42nd Street to call Helen. We're wiped out, Helen. I've got to run now. Going to catch the Detroiter at 6.30. The freshest recession in memory was the general business decline of 1920. Severe inflation... Shortages of many goods, many banks in the West failed. There were other recessions, 1920, 1907, 1903, 1901, that would be on the minds of these people. An hour after the markets closed, most were convinced that a genuine recovery was started by Richard Whitney. Most could not believe that the crash would have more than a temporary significance. In Providence, Rhode Island, Eddie bought a copy of the 4 p.m. edition of the Evening Bulletin. In Oklahoma, shortly after 2 p.m., Carrie was busy in the kitchen and missed the news. She didn't hear the announcer mention in sole utility investments. 6 p.m., Thursday, October 24, 1929. Millions of Americans faced bankruptcy. Workers of Wall Street, both those who received wages and those who worked for commissions, 
reaped rich dividends from the market break. Tens of thousands of clerical admin workers ordered to work overtime every night that week. The St. George Hotel in Brooklyn, nearest to Wall Street, was book solid. Paul Mazur, the highly respected partner at Lehman Brothers, said at a club that if it hadn't been for investment trusts and their almost automatic buying with scale orders, prices would have tumbled more. New York State made 350000 in stamp taxes on the transfer stocks that day. Charles Mitchell, National City's bank chairman, announced that his bank would put up a $25 million account for call money and would borrow it from the New York Federal Reserve Bank. 6.30 p.m., William C. Durant, founder of the world's largest manufacturing company, General Motors, almost broke. Durant controlled a pool of investments. The pool was estimated to be over $1 billion. The pool was now drained. 8.30 p.m., Thursday, October 24th, 1929. Eddie is in a dressing room. Gets a call from broker. We need 6500 soon. Broker suggested that Gallant hypothecate his stocks. Then Gallant could send only 1475 Gallant decides to hypothecate. On the Wall Street, a broker put down his phone, yelled, Got him! Harry Whedon is now on a train. The dining car price of sirloin steak was $2.25. Given his situation, Harry settled for the roast chicken at $1.75. It was a nonstop train through Canada to Detroit. A non-passenger would materialize mysteriously with booze, $2 above normal retail. 2 Rockefellers, Schiff's, Kahn's, Dwight Morrow, a Morgan partner. More than 10 million American homes had radio. 1929, ground was being broken for the Chrysler Building, the Empire State Building, Rockefeller Center was being planned. Wall Streeters went home to enjoy the weekend, fairly relaxed. But on Monday, a huge backlog of orders had accumulated. By Tuesday, October 29th, even the most optimistic leaders realized there was no way to bring meaningful support to the market. The weekend after Black Thursday, there were reassurances from President Hoover, Charles Schwab, the head of U.S. Steel, Eugene Stevens, president of Consolidated Illinois Bank. Again, the ticker dropped so far behind, it was useless as a measurement of what was happening. By Tuesday, October 29th, people who a week before were self-described millionaires were wiped out. At high noon on Tuesday, Richard Whitney called a secret meeting of the Board of Governors of the Exchange to discuss suspending all trading. They decided to keep the exchange open for the day. They gave Whitney the power to act on his judgment.
Eddie Cantor would suffer extreme losses in the financial markets, but would become the nation's number one comedy star by spoofing the crash and the depression in the coming years. Early November 1929, employees of the stock exchange and banks had been sleeping on cots. Richard Whitney decided that the panic had ended. He announced the exchange would not open on Thursday until noon. It would be closed Friday and Saturday. It would reopen on Monday and close on Election Day, a Tuesday. During the long election weekend, great numbers of liquidations were forced on investors. Millionaires were forced to surrender titles to their properties and sell their cars. Across the country, bankruptcies were forced on small homes. Customers who a few weeks before were planning trips to Europe were now wondering if they would have a roof over their head by Christmas. On November 13, 1929, the bottom was reached and prices were at their lowest. Hundreds of millions of dollars worth of installment debt. Monthly payments had to be met by people who lost their savings and soon would lose their jobs and possibly their home. James Riordan, president of the New York County Trust Company, took his own life. So did Herman Felgenhauer, a grain broker, Philadelphia broker Frank S. Palfrey, shot himself. And his neighbor, broker Paul Brown, also took his life. In the mid-1950s, Harvard professor John Kenneth Gulbraith said the culprit was the fragility of the business structure, not so much overproduction as had been commonly thought. In the 1970s, his opinions would make him liberal or leftist. There were revisions of the banking laws in the early 1930s. The Federal Reserve Board would have greater control over Wall Street and much more responsibility. Chesterfield coats and Hamburg hats reappeared. Soon seen were Rolls Royces, Cadillacs, Packards, Pierce Arrows, and Franklins. By 1931, many cities were going bankrupt. The weeks before Christmas, there were singers on Pennsylvania Ave singing the Communist Internationale. The signs outside read, Hoover Wars on Workers, Down with Hoover. December 1931, Joseph Stalin was gravely ill and was hidden from the public. Despite his illness, he still had the powers to ban enemies of Leon Trotsky. There was a purge of Trotskyites. We shall see which country can be called backward and which the vanguard of human progress, Stalin said, insisting that no outside capital would enter Russia. In the coming years, Richard Whitney would become a much sought-after speaker, booked for various events. In 1938, he was brought to bear for numerous irregularities, accused of embezzlement, misappropriation of customers' funds and securities, and other offenses. He had a short spectacular trial prosecuted by Thomas Dewey and was sentenced to five to ten years at Sing Sing. His brother George Whitney bailed out Richard and Whitney was paroled from Sing Sing in August 1941. Thursday, October 24th, 1929, 8 o'clock p.m. On the clean and shining oilcloth that covered the big kitchen table, Carrie Fenton had lined up one dozen long-necked screw-top bottles of homemade ketchup, 18 snap-on 8-ounce jars of chili sauce, and two dozen quart mason jars of stewed ripe tomatoes. They must all sit there overnight to cool slowly, and then receive a final lid, cap, or cover tightening in the morning. 
She was extremely pleased with herself. When Marcy Fenton returned to the farm, he vaulted from the Model T truck and raced into the house carrying a creel of four good-sized bass and three white perch, eager to display the fruits of his prowess to carry. He stopped briefly to admire her handiwork in the kitchen table, then charged to the living room, finding it empty onto the bedroom. Because he was behind schedule, the cows had come into the barn by themselves and had gone to their own stall, seeking food, water, and relief in their heavy, sagging udders. At the other end of the bar, the horses had done the same, and now they were snorting and stamping their hooves, communicating to their master their displeasure with his dalliance. Marcy put his creel of fish into the cooling room and then went from stall to stall, closing and fastening the place to prevent any nocturnal wanderings. Before he fed them, he hooked up the milkers and got six of the cows started. As he reached the door of his house, the phone was ringing and he hurried to get it so its sharp peel would not awaken Carrie. It was the eastern-sounding fellow from the stockbrokers. Mr. Fitton, I'd like to discuss your portfolio with you. Sure, go ahead. You sell my spalding? Yes, sir, we sold your spalding, and I think we got a good price for it. We were able to sell it at 46 Then, of course, we had to sell your insole utility investments. We were able to get 82 for your 250 shares. Well, gee, I don't know much about these things, but maybe you shouldn't have sold all my shares of insole. Oh, I'm afraid you don't understand, Mr. Fitton. Let me explain. Our records show that you bought 200 shares of insulin. The proceeds of your sale of insul stock today equal 20000 and the proceeds of the Spalding sale are 4600 That comes to a total of 25100 Your total debt with the firm is 32800 In other words, you'll owe the firm 7700 plus the regular commissions, of course. When can we expect to collect this loan, Mr. Fitton? It'll take a few days. Very well, sir. I'll show you work out the arrangements. Marcy turned from the wall phone and was startled to see Carrie standing behind him. What's wrong, Marcy? Well, nothing's really wrong. It was the stockbroker. There must have been hell on the market today. They had to sell us out. Oh, Marcy, what are we going to do? He sat at the table, not answering. What can we do? We're knocked back a couple of years. That's all there is to it, Carrie. It's a bad setback. We'll get a farmer's bank loan on the range steers for as much as they'll give us is probably about 40% of their potential market value next spring. Then we'll get the balance in a second mortgage. Our first mortgage isn't really big. We're better off than millions of people tonight. On the last trading day of 1929, the celebration began at 1.30 p.m. with the arrival of the 396th Infantry Band. Confetti began to shower over the trading floor. At 3 p.m., December 31st, 1929, Edward H.H. H. Simmons, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, sounded the gong. The cheer was heard from as far away as Broadway and Trinity Church. It was as loud as the noise from Black Thursday. Noisemakers were handed out. There was singing and champagne. Scotch, rye, and Jersey lightning flowed freely. One trader burned a copy of the paper from Black Thursday, and there was chanting. Nineteen seventy one, Daniel Rogers wrote a book called 
the day the market crashed. And many of the stories I'm relating come from this. It's a blend. There is some fiction in some of the stories, but they represent things that did happen to people on that day the market crashed. Here's what Rogers says. I was 10 years old when the great market crash of 1929 occurred. I don't recall the day, nor do I remember any of the discussions that must have taken place in my home. I do know that my father was a small investor in Wall Street, and many of my nearer kinfolk were also involved. I do know that all of my family who were in the market prior to October 24th, 1929, lost their investments, and that some lost even more than that. In this manner, the day affected me, and this I remember. I remember its aftermath, the Great Depression. For the next 12 years, until Pearl Harbor caused America to stop holding its breath and shift gears into industrial production and manpower mobilization, I was affected both as an adolescent and as a young man, as were millions of other Americans. We grew up in a land where hunger was as near as your neighbor's home, where in many towns the unemployed outnumbered the gainful workers by a wide margin, where newspapers and craft grocery bags were saved to make inner soles for shoes, where little more than 25% of the high school graduates could ever hope to go on to college, where aching teeth were allowed to rot to stumps because dentists were a luxury, where people sat on flagpoles for prizes, danced in marathons for purses, and allowed themselves to be buried alive in a quest of endurance and a much-needed award. We are more sophisticated people than we were in 1929, taught to be wiser by that cruelest instructor of all, experience. The memory of the Depression spawn of the crash sustains a specter that hovers over and affects American thinking two scores later. Many of the great social strides of the last 40 years are designed to alleviate man's suffering, to level his ups and downs, and to eliminate his peaks of well-being and valleys of want. They stem from the ghost of the Great Depression. Never again, we said then, would we allow this to happen. It was the dream of men who were forced to grow old and die before their time. It has endured as the great American dream. Or has it, he writes in 1971. It is fading now, and as we move farther away from time, that tragic end to the decade of the Roaring Twenties, have we forgotten in these days of new challenges that to avoid another depression, we must also avoid another market crash? When I first went to Wall Street, there were men still there, brokers and other professionals who had survived the crash of 29. They spoke of it with pride and some awe, as do combat veterans, downplaying the horror and tragedy and emphasizing the glamour and excitement. There were many men in those earlier days who had weathered the Depression on Wall Street, when it was a ghost town, haunted, unwanted, avoided. They too related their experiences proudly, saying that people who sold securities in later years were mere order takers, who knew nothing of the real kind of salesmanship that was required when everyone was broke and Wall Street was a dirty name.